and welcome back to another episode of Forensic Friends. I'm your host, Shelly, and I'm joined by my forensically fascinated friend, Natalie. Hello, hello. And we're short a triple F today. My fellow forensic friend, Dylan, is currently on vacation, so we're going to take this opportunity to shit talk him. <laughs> he's, he's enjoying some time off in sunny Brazil, getting very burnt. Wait, in Brazil? Okay, now he definitely gets shit talked. That's not fair. <laughs> yeah, he's posting pictures on his Instagram of him on the beach and like enjoying drinks out on the patio. Meanwhile, there's like three feet of, it's not three feet of snow, but there's a lot of snow and it's cold. Same here. I like cold, but that's just rude. Yeah, I don't like the heat. Actually, he's telling me that it's like way hotter than I could tolerate right now. But still, he's on vacation. <laughs> he's having a good time. Where's our vacation? <laughs> yeah. Rude, Dylan. Rude. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to occasionally throw some shade at him, if I remember to. <laughs> <laughs> it's all out of love. <laughs> it is. Mostly. He's, yeah. We throw shade at each other. That's how we show our affection. That's My... why we're such good friends. <laughs> <laughs> My mom and her brothers used to do that. They'd say, you're ugly and your breath stinks. And that's how they used to say, I love you. Okay, we don't go that far. <laughs> yeah, well, when you have four brothers and you're the youngest girl, I guess you can take what you get. <laughs> I'm a spoiled only child, so I can't relate. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're only doing one topic, and it's not going to be as nerdy as, la well, okay, the nerdiness of last week was debatable, <laughs> because as Natalie and I were just discussing, my view of the general populace <laughs> is slightly skewed because most of my friends are in the sciences so that was yeah, last week's episode wasn't very nerdy to me but you know for some people me the oxyribonucleic acid is like the nerdiest thing you've heard in a month yep me <laughs> yeah but this week i wanted to talk about tool marks because they're relatively fun and easy to understand we're talking like if i hit you in the head with an axe Tool marks? Yes. Well, I think the more common application is on non-animate objects. So, well, I mean, if I hit you in the head with an axe, it's still valid. True. Like, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure many people have seen or are aware of the show Bones. Oh, yeah. We can go on about the magical science that happens on in there. It was still a good show, though magic science notwithstanding but a lot of some of their investigative techniques was looking at the tool marks on the bones to determine like the object that struck them or sometimes it was where they were kept i yeah. remember there was one episode where you can see the wear and tear from i think it was shackles or something but on oh, a weird. non yeah i don't i'm not sure how like my specialty I don't have a specialty, but we never really went that in depth into forensic anthropology. It's very anatomical, and I do not like anatomy. But same idea, but applied to non-animate objects or inanimate objects, I think is the actual English word. Okay. Thank you for not correcting me. <laughs> so my some... nerdy area. <laughs> Look, English is my third language. I can't um, say anything to defend myself. <laughs> So tool marks are often used in cases of like break and enter. You might hear 
investigators talk about signs of force entry. Mm. A lot of tool marks can also be used for... We, we've used the example of robbing a bank. So in this case, it could be like breaking into a safe. Because, you know, lock picks, like if you're trying to saw or drill into a safe, which I don't know how successful you can be depending on the safe. But obviously those leave marks, which I put the definition. I don't know why I needed a definition because I think tool marks are pretty self-explanatory, but they are marks and impressions left by the contact of one object on another. And tool mark examination is somewhat related to ballistic examination, which is like really where you're trying to determine if this firearm shot this particular bullet. Yeah, which I not, have heard about that. Yeah, we're not going to get into too much um, detail with ballistics because I wanted to focus more on tool marks so that we're not all over the place. But same idea. The general examination technique is just comparing the marks. And there's actually three categories of tool marks, which I completely forgot about until I went over to my textbook. There are compression marks, which, as it sounds, is left when a tool is pressed onto a softer material. So that's like, say, a hammer. If it strikes something, it compresses a material, leaves a mark, or even just like okay. a, a stamp. There's a sliding type of tool mark, which is caused by sliding. Like a saw sliding? or That's actually a cutting Type of tool mark. Uh, so sliding is like if I scraped something with a screwdriver. Oh, okay. So like someone keys your car. Yes, which did happen to me once, and I was really mad because I was <laughs> I was too. I was not parked anywhere obnoxious. Like it was well out of the way, and they fucking keyed the entire side of my car. It wasn't like a strong key mark, so we just kind of was like whatever, but still pissed me off. Rude. Yeah, and then cutting is like you said a saw but it's actually a combination of both sliding and compression so it's a little bit more complex because there's more movement involved because even if you think of like a blade cutting say like fabric or in this case like a blade cutting a piece of plastic you're pressing down on that blade which leaves a compression mark and then you're also sliding the blade which is that sliding mark so you have a combination of both and it it, I can see why it would complicate the examination because it's funky. That's a scientific term. Funky? Yes. <laughs> I, I can get down with that. <laughs> okay. It's just like your, what was it? Hella dodgy? Right. What? Total scientific term. Hella dodgy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the problem is that I've, I think I've mentioned before, uh, you're not going to get a perfect piece of evidence. Like with fingerprints, you're not going to get a, perfectly full unsmudged clear fingerprint and that's the same with tool marks a lot of it is affected by the actual surface that the mark is being left on the hardness of the surface and also what the texture is and also of course like the force that left the mark to begin with you're not going to get a clear impression of someone lightly tapping something with a hammer compared to someone striking it at full force right and Soft materials like soft metals and plastics are generally better surfaces for tool marks, whereas materials like obviously hard metal, they're probably not going to be as easily marked. And also this one example which I thought was interesting was raw wood will actually make it difficult to see a lot of marks. And that is because of the grain of the wood. 
actually a lot like the size and the distribution of the grain can match with a lot of like the average sliding tool mark so how do you tell if it's from the wood i would never have thought about that yeah i like it was i was surprised by this example too because i didn't really think about it either but that's just something else to consider if you're looking at say someone breaking into an apartment that has a wooden door frame um so if it's raw wood it won't be as easy to figure out how they got in well even if it was like painted wood if something is light enough to just make an impression on the paint it might leave a good mark but if they're striking it with a much bigger force and it gets into the wood then you're messing with the wood grain itself Mm. yeah so the analysis is pretty it's pretty like hands-on and practical and i think this is very intuitive but firstly to collect the tool mark and to document it investigators should be very careful not to alter the tool mark so i don't know if this is this has ever been portrayed in crime shows but you might be tempted to fit a suspect object into the tool mark and see if it matches don't do that that seems like a really bad idea and i don't even know any of the science <laughs> you'd left a comment on some of the pictures for the bloodstain pattern analysis where it was showing like us taping the string all over the the bloodstain pattern yeah and you were concerned about i guess contamination or altering the pattern right definitely altering so in that case because firstly we've already documented the original pattern through photographs and you're also just picking specific bits and pieces because there's an abundance of blood especially in that particular pattern that was shown in the picture which is on the Instagram you're not going to lose out on evidence but a tool mark chances are you have just the one I think my concern mostly with the blood splatter was like uh, if you tape on it you might miss the chance to see something you might have not seen before because i've heard so many cases that go cold and then someone takes a new look at a crime scene photo and notices something that you didn't notice before so for me like taping to determine blood splatter and where someone was hit or something that seems very risky to me well i i can see that but again like you photograph it before the taping right so i don't think I don't think we really went over the process of what happens when um, scenes of crimes officers actually get to a crime scene. But other than securing the scene, one of the first things you do is you photograph everything. That they do portray on TV. Yeah. So they don't necessarily photograph it in the bunny suits with the booties and the masks and everything. But that is what we do. Like um, in school, when we went to the crime scene house, you know, we would have like a briefing to talk about. Like, in general, you would you would kind of have an idea of what kind of scene you're walking into, right? Our briefing was obviously more informational because it was a teaching situation. But after that, and we were released out into the wild. Um, <laughs> like, the first thing we did was get our cameras out, get our logs out, and start sketching the crime scene. I don't mean, like, sketching, like, an artist's sketch, but just a, the layout. And okay. marking where certain key pieces of evidence are. Excuse me. It's not an episode without a burp. 
also you're photographing, you're, you're taking a series of photographs, firstly to show the entire area. So you have like a wide landscape or several wide landscape shots. And then mm-hmm. you're taking pictures of the evidence. Like you'll put evidence markers, you know, those little number tent things. Yeah. The little like, yellow card like things that stand up. Yeah, so you would put you would put those next to key items of interest or pieces of evidence, and then you would take photos to show where that thing is in the context of the room or whatever. So, like if there was say a bloody knife on the table, so I would take a picture of the bloody knife and show where it is to like the edge of the table, where it is in relation to maybe a plate that's on the table, and then you go into the close-up of the actual evidence itself. So all of that is done before there's any kind of collection or testing or alteration to the scene. Okay, that makes me feel better about it then. Yeah, because as you said, like a lot of cases do go cold because someone missed something and then someone else looks back at the old case files and the information and they're like, wait a second, what's this? And then they do the CSI zoom, enhance, enhance, enhance. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, that doesn't happen. And it's the same with, like, with the bloodstain patterns, you would take a picture of it first. Obviously, the pictures that I showed were with the stringing because that's what I was trying to show you guys. But we took pictures of the entire room before that, before we put any string, anything, before we even marked the droplets of blood that we were going to measure, there were pictures. And then for tool marks, same thing. You would take all those photos and then you would take close-up photos to show as much detail as you can because we're going to get into how they actually compare it, but you still want the original unaltered photo of it. And also something to consider is trace evidence in the tool marks. We're just going to go back to Locart's principle where you know every contact leaves a trace and there is an exchange of material. So say you have a hammer and there's like rust on it that could transfer onto the surface that it's striking. Will that rust mean anything? Probably not, hammers rust, but there could be other things. Like I think I use the example of a safe. There's actually insulation inside the walls of safes and that could transfer to the tools and actually to the person who tried to break in. That makes sense because I've heard of that in like the context of the West Memphis Three, if you're familiar with that. You would have to give me more detail because, to be honest, I don't uh, remember, like, the names of cases <laughs> or, like, so suspects or uh, whatever. There's a case in Arkansas that, like, was during the height of the satanic panic in the okay. 90s. And a lot of their evidence hinged on a knife that mysteriously disappeared They said there was blood on it. There was no evidence of blood on it, if I remember that correctly. It was just a big mess. But they, in hindsight, when they're going back and figured out that they were wrong, uh, couldn't find the knife and go and look to see. Yeah, it was, it mysteriously disappeared from evidence. So they couldn't find out if there was blood or any kind of fingerprints or anything like that on there. And in that case, a photograph wouldn't really help because it could be trace amounts of blood and fingerprints. You wouldn't, you probably wouldn't be able to see it unless you dusted it, right? Like, right. assuming it wasn't a bloody fingerprint or like, you know, 
someone smudged paint or whatever. So yeah, having the original piece of evidence can be very important. But as we've mentioned before, unfortunately, some of the testing is destructive. You try to save as much as you can, but you kind of have to weigh the benefits against the consequences. So the object with the tool mark in its entirety is collected, assuming that's possible. So if you had like a door with scrapings on it from someone trying to break in, they might just take the whole damn door. Sorry, whoever lives there, you don't have a door. The entire door? Yeah. (laughs) Because they don't want to... They don't want to alter the evidence, right? They don't want to like risk accidentally destroying it by sawing the door or whatever. And even if it was like the door jam, I think that's what it's called, like where the doorknob is and the mechanism that keeps the door closed. I think so. You can, in theory, unscrew that. But then if you're unscrewing that, you're adding tool marks of your own. Right. Which could be detrimental. So... Yeah, I remember my prof being like, if that's if that door has tool marks on it and we need to test it, we're taking the whole damn door with us. Oh my gosh. This applies to a lot of types of evidence, actually. Like, sorry, I'm just looking over and one of Dylan's cat is like making love to my backpack. Oh my God. <laughs> oh no. But yeah, the, like even with bloodstain uh, analysis, like bloodstain evidence, it might be advantageous to take the entire thing, assuming it's not firmly attached to anything. If it is, then you can actually make a mold of the tool mark. And obviously any potential culprit tool which is found will be collected so that it could be compared to the tool mark itself. And rather than, like I said, trying to fit the tool into the mark and see if it matches, what examiners will do is actually do like test marks on a soft material to see all the little markings that it can make. So they might use tin or aluminum, which is pretty good at keeping all the detail of the markings. So briefly, I want to talk about class versus individual characteristics, which applies to a lot of areas of evidence, but in tool marks, it's kind of important. So class characteristics will be the same for all items that are like the same, usually of the same make. So in the case of tool marks, it could be the dimension of a tool mark. Like how wide is this scrape going to be? What's the distance from one little marker to another? That's going to be the same for all types of that particular item. So like the distance between the teeth on a saw, for example. In other evidence, like for fibers, it could obviously be the color or the thickness of the fiber, the type of material it is. Those are going to help you narrow down the type of thing that you're looking for, but it's much, much more circumstantial than individual characteristics, which will actually tell you if this specific item made that specific mark. And in terms of tool marks, individual characteristics are usually caused by wear and tear. Like if you have a saw that has been used fairly often, there's going to be little nicks and dents in the blade, and that will translate into marks when you use it on anything else. And some of it can also be the random marks made by the manufacturing of that item. Like if you're honing a knife? 
Yeah, so like if you're sharpening a blade, the the whetstone, I think that's what it's called. Yeah. Is going to leave specific marks and those marks might not be consistent for every time that you use it because that particular manufacturing item like the whetstone or like a die cutter will also have its own wear and tear but actually yeah so modern manufacturing techniques however actually reduce the potential amount of individual characteristics because so many things are automated and I'm assuming relatively well maintained that what looks like could be individual marks are actually just imperfections made from that particular plant. So there was a case of break-ins, like it was a series of break-ins, and investigators noticed that the screwdriver used for the break-in had this particular pattern of striations, um, which are like parallel lines, on one side, and then ripple marks that are on the face of the blade itself. But then it turns out that screwdrivers of the same brand and size all had the same marks because they were made by like whatever grinding thing it was that forged the blade, I guess. Forged the blade sounds really medieval. I don't know why I said that. It did sound... It's not forged. It's like, they, yeah, like they ground the blade to make it that particular size. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, I got you. (laughs) So this makes it important for toolmark examiners to understand the manufacturing process of a lot of the more common tools. And if you're not sure, that's when you call the company and be like, hey, we got this thing. We need this information. Please give. Not in those words. (laughs) Please give. (laughs) PLS. (laughs) PLS GIV. However, tool marks on manufactured items can still be useful because it can lead you to the manufacturer. And depending on how widely distributed, we've seen this in CSI and all those crime shows, it could lead you to a buyer who could be a person of interest. In the kidnapping and murder of Charles Lindbergh's son, which I think many people are familiar with this case. That was the baby, right? Yes. The planing marks on the pieces of lumber that were used to make the ladder which if you recall from the case was how they got to the baby like how the kidnappers got to the the ladder to the nursery yeah so the planing marks on the wood that was used led the investigators to a specific lumber mill unfortunately in this case the lumber mill doesn't keep like a very strict record of purchasers especially if they paid in cash but the possibility is there. You, If someone, especially if it was a lumber mill, then you're probably selling to like contractors rather than, or companies rather than individuals, which leads more of a paper trail. So investigators are looking at these characteristics. They can make a mold of the tool mark itself, especially if, that item cannot be removed and taken to a lab like if it was the wall. That is one thing they will not try to take. The door, yeah, up for grabs. <laughs> Just knock out the entire wall. No big deal. Buildings don't need walls. Take the wallpaper off the wall. <laughs> but it goes, but the mark will go beyond the wallpaper. So. Uh, <laughs> technicalities. <laughs> yeah, so the more ideal 
like material to make these molds is actually a type of silicone, silicone rubber. So hmm. this, it will actually very accurately reproduce even the smallest of marks. And that way, examiners can look at these marks under a microscope and do essentially a side-by-side -side comparison with the test marks that they make if they have like a, a potential culprit weapon or tool. So yeah, like it's, it's not just done with the naked eye. It, it is done with a microscope, just, you know, FYI. And depending on the marks and depending on how much detail they can get, they might actually use a very high-powered microscope, like a scanning electron microscope, which are very expensive. We weren't allowed to use it in our lab. But like, yeah, it, it's, it's not just that mechanism isn't just the magnification. It's like other stuff. But like I said, I'm not going to get too nerdy in this episode. So we're not going to get into that. Your nerding output, uh, buddy, is gone. Yeah, I know. Having the time of his life in Brazil. <laughs> Hopefully Getting... he comes back with a sunburn. Oh, no, he's very burnt. I will, I will show you pictures. Oh, I will, my gosh. I don't think I will post pictures to our Instagram of him because, you know, that's – it's his personal stuff. But I will send Natalie pictures, and then Natalie and I will laugh at Dylan and his sunburn. Yes, and, and this is your hint that it's beautiful. <laughs> so, like with many aspects of forensic science, there are some challenges to – or arguments and criticism – for tool mark analysis, because as you might imagine, it's kind of subjective. Even DNA had its criticisms, but you're you're talking about people who are visually comparing things. And well, you're looking at it under a microscope, right? So if you're taking, say it was a piece of wood and there was an axe, and investigators would take maybe another piece of wood of similar grain, similar tree species i don't understand carpentry stuff okay <laughs> and they might take they might take that potential culprit weapon and strike the test piece of wood and then compare the marks that that makes with the mark found at the crime scene like usually they would use aluminum or uh, tin because that gives you all the detail and then you can like it, it's a very you have to have a pretty high attention to detail as you might imagine. But unfor sure. unfortunately, like, it is still done by people. You're, there is, as far as I'm concerned, there is no, like, algorithm to visually compare, say, the a screenshot or a photograph of a microscoped projected image of a tool mark versus something to compare it to. Like, there's not, it's not like a facial recognition thing. Basically, this is just this just becomes more circumstantial evidence that would paint a clearer picture, but not necessarily convict someone. Yes, I mean you, it's it's hard to convict someone on just tool marks because well, this mark was made by this hammer, and maybe it was your hammer, but that doesn't mean you used it. Right? Yeah, you know, same with same with ballistics. Yes, this bullet was fired from your gun. But you're not the only one with access to your gun. It could have been taken away without your knowledge or stolen or whatever. Yeah, so it, it's all circumstantial. And especially, I think, the biggest criticism with tool mark evidence is that it's much more, and even like ballistic evidence, it's much more subjective compared to a lot of other analysis and analyses. 
So it's just as subjective as fingerprints, wouldn't it be? Yeah, exactly. Like it, I mean, fingerprints, because there is a semi-automated method nowadays, it's a little slightly more structured. But at the end, like, like we discussed in that episode, you are still looking at a person who is staring at a fingerprint and marking off things. And it's kind of the same idea with tool marks. And especially with ballistic evidence, there was a lot of criticism that there might not actually be enough individuality in the markings for examiners to positively and absolutely identify the firearm that fired a particular bullet. However, the Association of Firearm and Toolmark Examiners and the Scientific Working Group for Firearms and Toolmarks adopted certain guidelines, which allows you to confidently say the chance of another tool making this mark is so remote that it's considered a, quote, practical impossibility, which is the same kind of thing we've been saying for all of these pieces of evidence is that there is a margin of error. But given, you know, that everything was done correctly, that margin of error is so low that it's almost negligible. That makes sense. Yeah. And there have also been concerns raised about the methods that were used for these types of examinations, if that they're not validated. But there have been obviously validation studies. And my understanding of specifically like in a medical laboratory, because that's my current work experience, but any method that you use to test, you can't just be like, oh, I came up with this thing. Let's just use it. (laughs) You have to do some kind of validation study to figure out what its margin of error actually is, if there is one, which there probably will be, but if it's like a passable margin of error or if it's too big and just doesn't make sense and if it obviously is scientifically sound. So there have been studies, not a lot, but there have been validation studies and these studies didn't have a noticeable margin of error. And then finally, there are concerns about the competency of the examiners themselves. Like you had brought up for fingerprints that you don't really need a specific certification to be a fingerprint examiner. Right. Um, You just have to say that you've done it or you can see it or it's crazy. Well, I I don't know about Toolmark specifically if you need a specific certification, but any lab that is accredited, which means it has gone through like audits and pretty much most legitimate labs, forensic, medical, pharmaceutical, would be accredited, um, which means that they are looked at by a third party who does not give a shit as to whether or not you succeed. They just want to know that you're doing everything right. They will actually make the lab technicians undergo proficiency training. So. Oh, wow. They have a standard of who is going to pass and who isn't. And if you don't pass, then you got to redo your training and then get retested. Yeah. So it is like we should test old people for driving proficiency. Yes, I agree. Actually, (laughs) I think I don't think that is just limited to old people. I think everyone should be occasionally retested because good God, the drivers here drive me insane. (laughs) That was not an intended pun, but it worked. (laughs) The number of times 
I mean, sometimes I will admit it's because I was a little reckless when I was driving, but most of the time, it's just sheer stupidity that I've nearly gotten into accidents. I'm pretty sure the only reason I haven't gotten into an accident is because my reflexes are apparently that fast. Yeah, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Just a slight tangent. (laughs) Another topic for another podcast, not this podcast. Although we will definitely talk about hit and run and automotive evidence at some point in this podcast. There's there's a lot of different, like it kind of ties in different disciplines when it comes to hit and runs and automotive stuff, as you might imagine. There's tool marks, there's biological stuff, like if you're looking at a victim, you know, you're like doing their autopsy so when you if have- they're passed out or passed out, passed, passed, <laughs> if they're dead. I was trying to say passed dead. Away. Then, yes, passed away. <laughs> Not passed out. Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so impact is, would that be part of tool marks? So if you hit a person or if you hit a median, something like that, does that count? Yeah. So, a- yeah, like if you struck, say, a building – or a fence or something and the grill of your car leaves a mark you could examine it in the same way that you would examine other tool marks obviously so it does fall under the same category i technically yes it is a visual analysis i think from my understanding when i learned it in school tool marks is kind of it sounds specific but it's actually pretty broad because you're literally looking at marks made by another object. Doesn't necessarily have to be tools in that sense, right? And yeah. like we talked about in the beginning of the episode, like it could be marks on a person. It could be like, you know, markings on a bone if you're looking at a, a very bad assault or murder case. Uh, or a skeleton. It would still be very bad because if you were to hit hard enough to make a mark on the bone, bleh, yikes. <laughs> I have heard of that kind of thing happening where someone stabbed so hard that they nicked a rib or something. Oh, yeah. It, I would imagine that it's not that easy to actually stab through the ribs. You would have to, like, nick it, and then it would end up probably sliding into the intercostal space, which is the space between your ribs, to actually hit mm-hmm. anything underneath. And you've seen on TV shows and heard stories of like the tip of a knife breaking and getting embedded in a person. Yeah. Yeah. So that like it can apply to that as well. Like I said, widely, more commonly tool marking analysis is used in cases of break and enter or like ballistics. Like if someone like me uses a credit card to get into their apartment. Yeah. I'm not sure if a credit card would actually be hard enough to leave a tool mark on a door. Uh, I don't know either, but that's how I got in my apartment a couple times and I forgot my keys. <laughs> Once my roommate and I accidentally locked ourselves out of the house, we were coming back from our exams, I think. Or no, we went to get lunch and I think I had an exam later that day. But like we didn't, we tried to pick our lock because we had bobby pins because we're both girls with long hair. That's way harder than oh, yes, it a, is. Cr- a card. I, I don't know how to pick locks, okay? <laughs> the cards are easy. I had to learn because 
I, you know, you hear those stories of older people saying they were latchkey kids. I mean, I was a latchkey. I was, yeah, me too. Yeah. I don't think that's ended. So. Older, older people? Natalie, what are you saying? I, no. Usually it's used to indicate a generational phenomenon. Oh. Because after, yeah, because I think it started in the 50s and 60s when people started going to work. Like both parents were starting to go to work oh. and then you had this increased number of flashkey kids. That's why I say older because it's, it's a generation marker. So we might have been latchkey kids, but we weren't part of that Those generation like, where everyone okay. yeah it was that generation 67 50 60 70s yeah. where people I mean, were like yeah my five-year-old can walk to school the de- <laughs> debatable because if you're the children of poor parents and in my case like somewhat poor immigrants then you were in that same situation where both parents had to be at work and no one could take care of you while you're at school yeah new wave of things happening when Parent, both parents were out and the moms oh, okay. typically didn't stay at home yeah it makes sense and then you locked yourself out as a kid <laughs> oh for sure we forgot our kid our keys all the time like we were Aww. like 12 13 i was about that old and of course you don't always remember your key because you're, you're a kid See, you look, my brother punched out the window one time oh wow to get in i don't think I, arkansas is hot i don't it's, think i use like 100 degrees i don't think i ever forgot my keys because i had to use the keys to to lock the door because my parents weren't home when i went to school and they might not have been home when i came back from school depending on like if they were working overtime especially they wouldn't be home and i think at the time my dad worked night shift so he would be asleep so he wasn't there to open the door for me while my mom was still at work so okay that makes sense but when you when your parents are there when you get to or you leave for school to get on the bus or like I did, then it's not as big of a problem. Definitely there were some times where we were outside in the summer and I was 12, which makes my younger sisters like five and six. Oh. And you have to get the door open. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We, when we were locked out, it's because the door of the house that we lived in, it was the kind where the, the lock was just in the doorknob and you could open the door from the inside without unlocking it but it would stay locked so we both forgot our keys and we just opened the door like we didn't have to unlock the door to open it and then when we left like we didn't think anything of it because we didn't like it was already locked and that's how we normally do it like I would grab my keys but then I wouldn't have to turn around and lock the door but we both forgot our keys and the door was locked and we called our landlord but like she's not that responsive. So we were waiting for a while. But luckily the Wi-Fi reached just outside. So other than oh YouTubing other than YouTubing videos on how to break into our own house, I was studying for my exam that I had later that night. Cause I was able to pull up the PowerPoints on my phone. Well, if there was a deadbolt, we were just screwed, but if it's just a doorknob, it's very easy. People, if you just have a lock in your house and you only do the doorknob, please lock your deadbolt. Please. Oh, yeah. Because deadbolts are really hard to get in. But if you have just the doorknob, I, be- I figured out how to open that when I was 12. You are in trouble. <laughs> yeah, we... Look, my roommate was 
a goody, I mean, she still is a goody two-shoes. And other than my penchants for violence, so am I. So naturally, <laughs> we didn't we didn't know how to open the door. And we tried doing the most millennial thing, which is Google and YouTube, trying how to get in. And most people are just like, either break a window or like, we thought, I guess it's legal in Canada. I don't know about other countries, but there were suggestions that you go to the hardware store and buy a lock picking kit which like you can't actually get in Canada. Uh, Only locksmiths have that. I don't know that. if you can. Yeah, I don't know. I think you can get it, but like, I don't know. That seems really sketchy. Yeah, exactly. That. Right? Like we we went to the hardware store that was down the street and they were like, yeah, we don't sell those because that's kind of illegal. And I was like, oh, but, but you know, we're not trying to break in. We're just trying to get home. Yeah, that, I mean, my brother broke the window. I When I say credit card, I mean any kind of hard card, like yeah. library card I often use. That will open a door. Good, Very easily. Good to know. I mean, like, generally, I always deadbolt and use the, the chain and whatever if I have it. You know, growing up in a not-so-great neighborhood makes you do that. Hmm. But That's the good thing. But if someone wants to get in your house, they're going to get in your house. Yeah, but. that's true. Anyway. Peace of mind. <laughs> Lock your deadbolts. Oh my god. Yes. Lock your doors. Don't don't just wander out and forget to lock your door. It's don't put an extra key under your welcome mat. Nope. We actually we we did end up hiding an extra key after that. Um It's fine, just not under the welcome mat. No, no, no. It's not it wasn't even at the front of the house. We hid it like around the back and you would have to search for it cuz like I said, grew up in a not so great neighborhood so extra careful yep i think that's it for tool marks yeah we talk about our attempts to break and enter and incriminate ourselves <laughs> slightly natalie tries to teach people how to break into places with credit cards or library cards which is can you imagine a robber using their library card to break into someone's house uh is it bad that i think that's hilarious i think it's hilarious i think it's wonderful <laughs> we go in and steal I mean all your books <laughs> I, I'm not telling anyone how to do it, but like it's not hard to figure out, uh, it, which, it, which should be scary to people. <laughs> if there's a chance, I'm not taking it. <laughs> For real. I mean, you should be careful. I mean, I grew, I went to college in New Orleans, so I'm very, very, very conscious of mm-hmm. open or unlocked doors. And my girlfriend is just like, what? <laughs> I mean, honestly, like I watch so much true crime and listen to too much so much true crime that i'm like you die the day you think you don't have to do things yeah exactly like that's the one time like it's always those stories she usually locks the door but today she didn't lock the door and then someone came in and raped and killed her like yeah don't don't take that chance no thank you anyway that took a slightly dark turn (laughs) we're talking about forensic science really i mean this episode was less morbid than the other episodes that we've done already okay fine (laughs) anyway i think this is a good spot to end it probably natalie would you like to tell our listeners where they can find you you can find me at some kind of brown which is my podcast anywhere podcasts are played you can find me on social media at some kind of brown and i am a part of yellow jacket media 
And you can find this, well, you're already listening to this podcast, so I guess you know where to find it. <laughs> you can also follow us on Instagram, which is Forensic Friends Podcast, and Twitter, which is Forensic Fiends. And also you can email if you want, which is ForensicFriendsPod at gmail.com. I'm surprised I didn't mess it up this time. <laughs> Also, if you're interested in just a weird, random, whatever podcast, which is like all the tangents that we go on with us, the forensics, you can find... Which are many. Yes. Oh, too many. (laughs) You can find my other podcast called Several Tangents, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can check out the social media for that, at Several Tangents on everything. And that's it. We're done. Bye. Bye.